What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Posbon, and you are listening to part three of episode 23 of VGM Generation. And with me this time is Norm Garrett. Cheers, love. The cavalry's in. <laughs> oh, man, that was fantastic. And Jordan Belinsky. So long and thanks for the fish. There you go. Uh, and in this series of episodes, we are talking about Sega. It is Sega month. We are talking about all things Sega. And uh, you're saying it wrong. Sega. Sega. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you're doing that Sega. one. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I guess uh, we'll have Norm go first, actually. Norm, what do you got first? This all one? right. Jordan really winced when I uh, said my hello. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what it's from. I'm gonna oh, oh okay. Overwatch. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah. I was, yeah, it was pretty bad. I, I was just I, confused. I thought it was excellent. <laughs> oh. um, so I'm going to be talking about a game called Devilish. It was for Game Gear and Sega Genesis, and it came out in 1991. Uh, originally for the Game Gear, and then it was um, uh, it came out for the Genesis under kind of a subtitle, but I think it was pretty much the same game. The version I played was the Genesis version. Um, so the subtitle was The Next Possession. It was actually called Bad Omen in Japan. Uh, I don't know why they changed it, but uh, the version I played, uh, the developer quoted was Sage's Creation, uh, like I said, for the Sega Genesis. It is a, a very interesting game with a, a really cool concept. Uh, it's it's a breakout Arkanoid kind of clone game, except the twist, there's two twists. One twist is you have two paddles instead of one. That Those who don't know Breakout, Arkanoid, it's, it's one of those games where the play field is just a bunch of blocks and there's like a ball that bounces off your paddle. It's kind of like a one-player pong type of game. You break the blocks to advance. Uh, the, the unique thing about this is, like I said, two paddles uh, you can, and you can move them around the play field and it's uh, it's a scrolling play field. So you're not just stuck to one stationary screen as you destroy blocks, you uh, advance up through the stage and there's bosses and stuff. So it's kind of neat in that respect. Uh, unfortunately, the physics engine is not so good. So uh, the game's got <laughs> a shock. Yeah, it's got a really <laughs> it's got a really cool concept, but just unfortunately the game engine doesn't do it justice. So hard to play, but uh, um yeah, and the story behind it is is pretty crappy too. It's kind of like this, like it's called devilish, so it's got this kind of edgy skulls everywhere theme. Uh, I guess an evil wizard or demon named Y turned this, uh, I think it's a prince and a princess, into two paddles. <laughs> so they didn't even try. They just said, yeah, they were magically transformed into two paddles. That's I mean, how much better of a story can you get with like a pong game? What I more know. do you want? Or could have said monoliths or something that made more, <laughs> was more congruent with the I think that's world. an amazing story. But yeah, it was kind of amusing. Uh, the demon named Y. Uh, anyway, uh, like I said, uh, creative concept, not a great game, but the music. So... The, actually, the way I found this game was because of the composer. Um, I said before, I didn't have a lot of experience with uh, Sega games growing up, so I kind of had to find some games. Uh, and I, in, in this case, my methodology was, hey, uh, I know some composers. Let's see if some of my favorite composers have composed any games for Sega Genesis. So um, I've talked about Hitoshi Sakimoto, who has done Final Fantasy Tactics and the Ogre Battle games, and... Sure enough, he'd done Devilish, so I decided to try Devilish to see how the music was. And sure enough, uh, really good music. Um, a lot of people agree, just 
he's a he's a huge name in in composing music. So uh, he did a really good job with this. Uh, let's get right into it. The track I chose was from one of the later stages, which I was not able to reach playing it myself. Uh, called the Air Passage. So let's have a listen to Devilish Air Passage. when you find a composer that you really like and then you start finding games based on the composer alone you know i've never actually done that but it's a great idea it is it gives you like that little edge to appreciate a game a little more than you would have before even playing it except for for the most part i find that the composers i like in the games i'm they're in our garbage, so I don't know. <laughs> well, it doesn't always that work. was the whole thing. Was the Tim uh, Follin's one of my favorites, yeah. right? So I've played every single game that he's composed for just because he's the composer. Yeah, and it doesn't pay off. <laughs> <laughs> well, for us, I mean, video game music is such a key component to video games that I mean, there's so many video games out there that there's no way you're going to be able to play every single game and and appreciate every soundtrack. So it's a really good way to discover new game music, right? Absolutely, you find for composers sure. you like and go that way it's kind of an interesting reverse methodology but yeah yeah so yeah i said this was kind of a weird edgy kind of fantasy theme there's really one really kind of clunky thing about it is in the menus anytime you select something on a menu there was this really weird effect that they would use to transition the screen and it was like it is like a zipper zipping up the screen and down and uh there's like the zipper is like a skull and then the uh, the spine of the zipper is like vertebra it, it's just oh, okay. that's completely cool. <laughs> overused in the game it's a cool effect but i feel like someone was sandboxing and came upon it and then just kept using it as much as they could <laughs> so does it, it sounds like a zipper or it sounds like does, did they do like the xylophone, xylophone? thing <laughs> yeah no it's an approximation of a zipper okay that's hilarious very metal and that's really all I have to say about it. Like I said, uh, really good soundtrack, really cool concept. And there was actually a version made for Nintendo DS more recently, which I haven't had a chance to play and see if the physics is better. But uh, cool concept, and I would like to play a game where it was uh, executed well. So, Is it one of those games where it's not hard because it's hard, it's hard because it's like... Sort yes. of broken? Okay. Yes. Yeah, because when you said the physics The engine, collision detection was just really bad. And I mean, when the whole game is based on collisions, yeah, that's <laughs> kind, of kind of a deal, deal breaker. breaker. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, I'll go next. And uh, this time, 
I picked a game that actually you two are probably better suited to talk about than myself, but I picked it because the story behind it is so excellent. So uh, it's Virtua Fighter 2. So anyone who knows Sega knows that Virtua is a big part of Sega. Is uh, There's a lot, of, a lot of Virtua games, Virtua Fighter, Virtua Racing. Uh, Virtual On, is that considered? Because it's Virtual, not Virtua On. I think it's different. Yeah. But it, I don't know for it's sure. Kinda got, it's by Sega and it's polygonal. Yeah. Which is kind of the... It was like that mech fighting... Yeah, it was really fun. Probably, yeah. It's probably part of the same Not, series. Yeah, so. Maybe it is, I don't know. Aside the point. But. Yeah, so um, the track I picked is Lion's Theme, uh, which is called Young Knight, and he was one of the new characters that was uh, introduced in uh, Virtual Fighter 2 from 1. Uh, so this was developed by Sega AM2, and we've often talked about like Nintendo's, they have like their all their classifications. R&D 17. Yeah, and so <laughs> AM... Two stands for amusement machine too, which I was thinking about it. That's actually like the perfect way to describe anything related to video games, an amusement machine. But like, I've never heard that before. <laughs> Very literal. It's so good. They had to come up with a second one because the first amusement machine was. Well, I busy. guess what happened was they broke after like there was a certain point in Sega's history where they broke up into a bunch of different teams and like AM2 was like one of these like was one of the most legendary teams because they ended up developing a lot of the uh, arcade games that went on into like to be famous and make a ton of money basically. Mm. Uh, so it came out in 1995. Mm. I'll try to pronounce the composers. This, this, this is going to be a rough one. It's a Tekanobu Mitoyushi, Teyuki Nakamura and Akiko Hashimoto. So, uh, this is, so uh, the AM2 is based on the Sega Model 2 board or came out on the Sega Model 2 board. Um, so it was a really expensive board at the time. Uh, it cost, I think it was like, uh, what was it? It was like 25, no, yeah, $2,500 per board at the time, which at the time was like to put out, you know, a thousand machines across the country or whatever was pretty high priced. Um, but ended up, uh, featuring some of the highest grossing games of all time. So Daytona USA, Virtual Fighter 2, Cyber Troopers, Virtual On, there you go, uh, House of the Dead and Dead or Alive were all on the uh, Sega Model 2 board. So this is the story. This is the part where it gets really interesting. So the game's uh, legendary director, Yu Suzuki, went to Lockheed Martin, which was formerly General Electric Aerial and Space, but had just become a private company because of the end of the Cold War. Um, because he wanted a better texture filter and mapping for the game. And they had developed a super expensive one for their flight simulator because that's what Lockheed Martin does. If you don't know, they're, they're an aerospace company. So um, they said, we'll give you this chip for $2 million. And it cost, but it cost us $32 million to develop, but we'll sell it to you for $2 million. At the time... That's a deal. <laughs> at the time, uh, Sega had only given him five grand to develop it. So he had to go back to Sega and be like, I need $2 million. <laughs> and they gave it to him, which is crazy to me. So they must have had a lot of faith in him. And this so, was just for the what? The graphics? Well, it, I know it, it was specifically because they had already done Virtua Fighter. So they already had developed 3D graphics. But what they didn't like was the texture the te filtering and the oh, mapping okay. yeah. were so the thing that they really wanted to make better. Give it that clean, crisp look. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so um, he took the chip back to his team. 
Um, and he was actually able to create a graphics chip that could be mass produced for fifty dollars. Wow. So they developed it for thirty-two million. He bought it for two million, and he developed a chip for his purposes that could be mass produced for fifty bucks. Damn. So, do you know, do you yeah. know if they bought the rights to the chip so they could use it for other games, or was it exclusive? I think yeah, no, they, they like they gave them the tech basically awesome. for so that two million. They probably so used, they used it for tons of stuff yeah. after this. Yeah, but this was the first time they had used it. Um, the other thing that he did uh, was this was one of the first games that ever and maybe the first game ever that used mocap. Um, so uh, previously had been totally limited to the healthcare industry. I don't know in what capacity, but yeah, they said all the reading I did said previously it had been limited to the healthcare industry and then he went and used it for video games. Hmm. So I guess maybe it was like um, like in sort of rehabilitation, like That's looking what at I was people's guess, gates yeah. and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, but yeah, uh, so he this was the first one with texture filtering and map mapping and mocap, uh, and then uh, he also to so once he had the mocap tech, he was like, well, I don't want to just like use this mocap tech and then like have us do the movements. He's like, I got to get people who know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So he flew him and his team to China, where they participated in martial arts training and captured a bunch of um, katas of all these like martial arts masters in China to put in the game. So there's a lot of work put into this Which, game. By today's standard sounds cool, but by yesterday's standard, that's amazing. That's yeah, well, like this was like, new, right? Yeah. No one oh, had yeah. ever done the this. First so, like, it's kind of, now yeah. it's yeah, commonplace. Like yeah. there isn't hardly a game that doesn't have some sort of mocap now, but uh, at the time to like fly a whole team out and buy a chip from Lockheed Martin was like mm -hmm. insane. So it's such a good story. I had to play some music. So Lion's theme is just my personal favorite. Uh, theme from the game. There's lots of great music in here, but let's listen to Young Knight from Virtua Fighter 2.
makes perfect sense that they got uh, real martial arts masters involved in the mocap because I don't know if you guys are familiar with the physics in the game, but every time you jump in that game, it's like you're on the moon. You like okay. fly through the air and it takes like an hour to land on the ground. And I mean, if that's mocap, the only person that could do that is the martial arts master. That's right. so. so just a few more thing about a um, few more things about virtual fighter um, overall, like the series as a whole. So they're up to, I believe virtual fighter five was the last one to come out. And then there was like a, like an expansion five. So five, you know, legendary edition or something like that. Um, but Virtual Fighter itself, the whole series, is kind of seen as the godfather of 3D fighting games. And to a degree, the godfather of like 3D games with people in them in general. Because before Virtual Fighter came along, they had done 3D, but it was more in like cars and vehicles, ships, blah, blah, blah. This was one of the first uh, like proof of concepts where like we can model people and make them look sort of realistic in 3D, right? So, um, it popularized 3D polygon graphics and holds seven world records for fighting and 3D games. Uh, and then the one of my favorite things that I read was the SCE, so the uh, which is like Sony's entertainment division, the people that produced the PlayStation, actually credit Virtual Fighter as the inspiration for the original PlayStation's 3D graphics hardware. Originally, when they were designing and thinking of the PlayStation, it was going to be a 2D console. But after they saw Virtual Fighter, they knew they had to go 3D. It was the future, yeah. It was the future, yeah. I kind of I kind of wish there was one more 2D console. Yeah. <laughs> Damn yeah. it. Well, it's like when people talk about some of the, you know, there wasn't a lot, but like when they talk about like the 32X and some of the 2D games that produced yeah. for that and like how good they looked and stuff like that. You couldn't get to the PS2 without having the PS1, but I kind of wish that the PS1, like you said, was maybe like another <laughs> 2D console, and then they so just like bypass that just ugly on virtual fighter. Just, no, 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 no. <laughs> just bypass the early 3D stage where everything looks really ugly and blocky, and just go straight into like the PS2 era. You gotta have the uh, <laughs> you gotta get have the sour to get the sweet. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. That's true. And yeah, if they hadn't, I mean, we kind of have ha we've been in the midst of a, a 2D renaissance over the last. Yeah. five years at least it's right? making up so, for that yeah yeah totally so i'm fine yeah yeah no the it's amazing how much more 2d stuff has come back in the last little while i love it though it's great i wish uh virtua fighter became more than what it is today you know like considering it's like considered the godfather of this and that yeah it's not like a mortal Kombat or street fighter it's not even really a tekken it's kind of yeah it's funny because like all these and it, the difference right is that we're talking about 3D fighters where you can move in 3D versus the 2D fighters, right? Yeah, so well, like Tekken's Mortal Kombat kind Street of Fighter like that, like yeah, a Tekken. bit of an arena. And even Mortal Kombat tried that a few times. Maybe yeah. Street Fighter did too, but I, I more so mean on the the caliber of um, its, le its legacy in yeah. the fighting game genre. Maybe not necessarily what kind of fighting game it is, but yeah, it would have been nice if it grew more than what it did. I think the people who are who were around to remember it and play it like still hold it in high oh, regard. Yeah. But you're totally right, like. It kind of, it's never been as big as some of the other fighting series and even some of the ones that it inspired, right? Like Dead or Alive, they say is like one of the most direct, um, you know, takeaways from Virtual Fighter, like was totally inspired by it and created because of it. And still, it is probably higher than Virtual Fighter when you look at the list. Of, by today's standard. Yeah, yeah by yeah. today's standard. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe just 
I don't know, less intriguing characters or, or even just five, not enough innovation. Even five came out quite a few years ago. I haven't heard anything else about the series. So yeah, no, it's been a while since anyone's talked about it. So but maybe we'll get a virtual fighter six. I don't know. Maybe yeah. this year, maybe next year. Who knows? All right, Jordan, what do you got for us this week? I'm going to talk about a Genesis classic mega drive classic called echo the dolphin. Have you guys ever heard of this one? Oh, of course. <laughs> I think, I think so. it's pretty yeah. well known. Um, this has been a game that's always, I've always been drawn to my entire life, um, but haven't actually played it until maybe over the last couple of years. Um, I was not the Genesis kid. I was the super Nintendo kid. My neighbor was the Genesis kid. Oh, well, that's good. And my At neighbor was neighbor. growing up. He was my best friend. So him and I, uh, kept each other in the loop on, on, you know, what this console had, what that one had. He never had Echo the Dolphin though. That's the one game he never had that I always wanted to play. And the first time I'd ever actually seen Echo was, you guys might be familiar and maybe some of our listeners remember if you grew up in the 90s during the, the console wars, when uh, Sega unleashed all those attack ads on Nintendo, you know, like Sega, uh, what was it? Genesis does what, what Nintendo Nintendo don't. Yeah. <laughs> the other one that was really prolific was the, um, the blast processing commercial where they unveiled what blast processing was. And they didn't really say what it was. They more so showed Genesis looking cool and Nintendo looking dumb. That's because it wasn't anything. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> a thing. It was something they made up. Well, it was, yeah, it was a marketing tactic. It, it was a real thing, but it wasn't what, what they described it. Yeah, really. like what it was, was um, one of the marketing guys went in to see what the engineers were working on and they were developing. I can't remember what game it was that they were developing, but basically they figured that they could, for lack of a better term, overclock the graphics chip very briefly mm. to get a little bit of extra horsepower for like fast motion and stuff in the games. And they were like, oh yeah, it's just like a, we can, you know, unleash can, a little blast of processing just to get this done. And he was like, blast processing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it became this whole yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it got to them, right? It got to Nintendo because they released a whole game as a, oh yeah, we can do that too. Uniracers, which I don't know if you guys have yeah. No, I've yeah. not heard of this. That was basically their <laughs> response to blast processing. But, okay. Yeah. But again, in a very Nintendo form, it didn't have that attitude that the Genesis had. You hold up Uniracers against something like Sonic the Hedgehog and it doesn't look as cool. I don't know, that music. Do you are another, another, another Uniracers fan? <laughs> yeah, I, I was, but another episode. Yeah. So, so going back to the commercial, this is the first time I'd ever seen Echo the Dolphin. So uh, to reiterate the commercial, um, it's like, here's the Sega Genesis. Here's what it looks like. And it shows a bunch of cool games and here's the super Nintendo. Well, the Genesis can do blast processing. What's blast processing. And then they do like a quick montage of boom, 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 all these really cool fast action, super high intensity clips from Genesis games. One of them was echo the dolphin. All it was, was echo jumping out of the water, doing a somersault and landing back in the water. But then you like cut to like race it, racing and gunfights and all this cool Genesis stuff. And then you pan over to the super Nintendo and then it's like this old broken down truck and it's like <laughs> it was yeah it was like it was mario kart but they yeah. put like an old timey filter on it and it oh, had like they? banjo music yeah <laughs> i remember <laughs> oh that's awesome i don't remember this ad. so of course being a nintendo fan that commercial made me very angry because i knew that that wasn't shedding the right light on nintendo but out of all the clips in that commercial i was always like that dolphin game looks really cool and I knew nothing about it. And I had heard kids talking about it growing up, still never played it. Then I got a little older and 
I think when I started collecting for Genesis games, that was one of the first ones I, I sought after was the uh, Echo of the Dolphin. And um, it's cool. It's um, for those that haven't played it, it's like um, it's very atmospheric, almost Metroid-esque in the level design. You're sort of navigating through these maze-like underwater structures and um, and always looking for air and health supply you you play so you play as the, the the main character echo and the game starts with you just sort of swimming around in the ocean with your family of dolphin friends and then all of a sudden they all get sucked up into the air and what ha what you find out in the story is that there's this group of aliens called the vortex and they've come and they've abducted your entire pod your family and so the whole point of the game is that uh as echo the dolphin you're trying to find your family that explains your uh, quote at the beginning of the episode. Yes, there you go. What an apt name, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the game, the game itself was really cool, but friggin' hard. I think when I first played it, um, I got to the second stage. There's like 25 stages in this game, maybe yeah, it's more. It's one of the hardest games I've yeah, ever played. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, I, I want to keep playing this game, but I just can't. It's just way too hard. Um, so. I come back to it every once in a while and I don't think I could ever get past the second stage. Um, that was until more recently when I decided I don't want to talk about this game. So real quick, some of the development details, it was developed by Novo trade international in 1993 and it was originally released on the Genesis mega drive. There was a re-release on the Sega CD and also a version on the game gear. More recently, um, echo the dolphin has come out on the 3ds on a Genesis 3d collection. So that's where I replayed the game. I picked it up again on the 3DS. And uh, so because of that, you know, the entire ROM was redone with the 3D graphics. So you can play it in 3D, which kind of helps. It looks really cool. But the big feature is that it comes with save states. Uh, so, so it makes it a possible I, game to play. I could get past level two. But here's the thing. I think they realized how hard the game was because they actually put on a feature called Super Dolphin Mode. And that makes it so when you go underwater, you don't need to come back up for air. And I think you're invincible too, but I decided not to play it because I'm like, if they give you save states, I could probably get through this thing without cheating more so than I already <laughs> am. And I think having, being a dolphin and going through some of these levels, it builds to the game's atmosphere. If you're always panicking that you've been underwater for too long and you need to find somewhere to find air, because it's not like you can always swim to the surface. Sometimes you have to look for little weird organisms and pods in the water that you can sort of break and then little bursts of air will come out or maybe you'll find a little crevice to swim up and you'll find a little, a little um, pocket of air that's sort of like at the crest of a ceiling somewhere. So it, it adds to that anxiety and intensity in the game that makes it really fun. Um, let's talk about the music real quick. Uh, composed by Spencer Nelson, Brian Coburn, and Andras Magyari. If I say that correctly. Your names are way easier than mine. <laughs> yeah, some of them. Uh, one of the details I found was that they were heavily inspired by Pink Floyd when uh, composing for this game. And the game is very melodic and atmospheric in its music, but also the whole overall tone of the game. I mean, if you're swimming through the ocean as a dolphin, um, you can't really beat a soundtrack that sounds like this. It's just puts you in the right mood to, to somersault and, and swim through the water. Um, so I, I, f I found out that one of the levels, the last level in the game is actually named after a Pink Floyd song as well. It's called 
uh, Welcome to the Machine. I don't know if you guys have, are big yeah. Pink Floyd fans. Okay. And then one of the later Echo games, I think it's Tides of Time, the sequel. It has a, another level slash song that's named after another Pink Floyd song. So they're, they're obviously they're really drawn to, to Pink Floyd. So the song I picked was not Welcome to the Machine, but uh, one of the earlier stages, one that I was more familiar with in my playthrough, it's called Medusa Bay. So let's listen to Echo the Dolphin. So I mentioned a little bit about the story and the development, but I don't know. Um, some people listening, if they're familiar with the game and the development might be saying, well, what about the inspiration behind the game? Because there's quite the story here and I don't know how, how common knowledge this is, but um, the creator of the game was asked in an interview uh, if he, what his inspirations were in the game, because to a lot of fans and people that have played this, they think there's a real big tie-in with uh, um, drug philosophy. I don't know if that has to do with like maybe a bit of the story and the aliens and the fact that um, the music and everything is just very like creepy and atmospheric. I don't know. Maybe there's more to it that I'm missing, but he said that he was, he, his exact quote was, I've never taken any LSD before, but I've read a lot of John C. Lilly. And I've heard of John C. Lilly, but I was, I couldn't really remember who he was. So he was an American uh, physician, neuroscientist, psychoanalyst, philosopher, and writer. And uh, one of the things he was most well known for in his, in his uh, career was um, being a researcher of the nature of consciousness. Um, dolphin communication 
and psychedelic drugs. So in the 60s, he was funded by the government to take on this project to see if he could teach dolphins to talk. So now you can kind of see where the tie-in, right? Like there's, there's something here with dolphins. There's something here with weird psychedelic drugs. What's going on? So in the 60s, um, yeah, he was funded to do this project, teach dolphins how to talk and communicate with humans. He had this house and he converted it into like a dolphin sanctuary. And what they did was they flooded this house and they converted it so that humans and dolphins could coexist in the same habitat. And one woman in particular, how could you even do that? Uh, <laughs> if, so you're, crazy. if you're funded by the government, I guess you can do anything. Uh, so there was one woman in particular, particular who got a lot of attention. Her name was Margaret Lovett. And she at the time didn't have any, uh, I don't think she had a resume that sort of spoke to this. She was just somebody that was like, I really want to do this. I'll work for free. I just want to be involved because you have dolphins. So they brought her on board and she became one of the, I guess in time she became like the best person on the team because she had the passion, she had the right drive and she just really connected with one dolphin in particular. Um, I, his, the dolphin's name was Peter. And I've heard interviews. Um, there's actually, there's been lots of podcasts and like news, news interviews based on their relationship. Um, I've heard clips of her talking to the dolphin and she gets him to say numbers and say certain words. And you can hear the way he says it. It's not like when you have a parrot regurgitate what you just said. Like it sounds like the dolphin's like using its brain and trying to talk. It's really interesting. And that's, that was the whole point of this research was to see how far they could go with this. And then the project went off the rails when headlines got out about the relationship that she was having with the dolphin, because apparently you guys, <laughs> Mike's smirking. Yeah, no, like, I've heard of this. I don't want to go here. Um, yeah, apparently the dolphin was distracted a lot and she, as part of her research and just trying to get him to focus would help relieve him in certain matters. And to her, it was always um, not a, deal, a big deal at all. It was always just like, I need to do this so that you can focus and get back to work in your training. And it was all about the research. And so then when this information got out into the public, um, they shut down the entire project. So that was the end of the dolphin project, but it sounded like it was making like all this progress. And I think to this day, when people say dolphins are some of the smartest creatures on the planet, I think a lot of that is because of this study that happened at the time. So some of that may have been the inspiration for echo the dolphin, but, um, after uh, John C. Lilly lost his funding, he moved on to his next venture, which was psychedelic drugs. And he, pr he got into ketamine because he was having these headaches. And at the time, a friend recommended him taking ketamine. And at that time, there wasn't much known about it. But essentially, it's like, I guess it's like taking acid. I don't know. I've never taken it. Um, so he would actually take, he got to the point where he started IVing it directly into his body and he would do this while sitting in sensory deprivation tanks. Mm. So 
that sounds like he's going off to another dimension. It doesn't sound like he's just having a, a nice afternoon trip. It sounds like he's going <laughs> off into the Milky Way and he's He's not popping a couple of Tylenol and, no. and waiting for the headache to subside. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and so a lot of a lot of this led to him having these crazy hallucinations. And one of the big ones that he always talked about was um, making contact with these organic es- extraterrestrials from another dimension. They weren't called the vortex, like like in Echo the Dolphin, but what he called them was the Earth Coincidence Control Office. Echo. Echo. Yeah. (laughs) So that is too much of a similarity. Um, The last thing he, uh, that I have here in my notes, it says, um, I have an exact quote from him here. That evening I took 150 milligrams of ketamine and suddenly the earth coincidence control office removed my penis and handed it to me. (laughs) I screamed in terror. My wife, hold on. My wife, Tony came running in the room And she said, it's still attached. I showed it at the ceiling. Who's in charge up there? A bunch of crazy kids. And that was him talking directly to Echo, the Earth Coincidence Control Office, who he thinks stole his penis. (laughs) And I think after that, he sort of got off the drugs and lived a clean, wholesome life. Yeah. (laughs) Went to church. That might scare you off it for a bit. I think the general rule with psychedelics is once you get the message, hang up the phone. (laughs) Yeah. So echo the dolphin. Yeah. So one more thing I'll add to that. So um, the creator of echo the dolphin, which is Ed Anu, yeah. Anu Ziata, yeah. or however you say that. Um, so yeah, like you were saying, you know, he's into all this stuff and, and, uh, but I guess he had been like thinking about this game for a while and had tried to pitch it a couple times and never got anything, uh, never got anywhere with it because the head of Sega at the time during the console wars was a guy called Tom Kalinsky and the whole book console wars. That's what I've talked about lots of times on this podcast is where I'm drawing this from. So um, they had just had a really uh, Sega head of America had just had like an awesome three uh, um, E3 and it was the E3 where they had actually finally um, for the first time ever had outpaced um, a Nintendo in console sales for the month. So they had actually, the Genesis beat the Super right. Nintendo for the first time ever. So they yeah. went out and had this giant party. And um, and finally, Ed went straight to, he, he had not approached uh, Tom directly before, but he went straight to him and everybody was drunk and partying and having a He's good like, time. This is the and moment. And he had uh, like uh, <laughs> napkins. He had a bunch of uh, cocktail napkins and he had drawn like, the dolphin and the ocean. And he was like explaining this game and he's like, man, this sounds weird. But like, he was in such a good mood. He was like, screw it. Just make it, go make it. And so, and then that's how that came to be. So like this game so close, almost never happened. happened, Yeah. But then ended up being like, and then they came back later and he was like, this game is incredible. Like there's nothing like this out there. Like this is a totally different sort of game. Yeah. And so it was like, you, people were really happy with it at the time at the, like once the, it, you know, proof of concept was made and stuff like that. So that's the thing. It's, it's the kind of game you have to show somebody because it's all about the feeling you get when you play it, not yeah. what it looks like or what you say to somebody to explain it. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, yeah, pretty I, interesting story. I believe that the, um, he, uh, went out of pocket to buy enough Sega Genesis to make 
the sales so good that he knew they would celebrate <laughs> and he could take advantage of their uh, inebriance. <laughs> That's a long con yeah. right there. Also a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And he slipped ketamine inside everybody's exactly, drinks. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody was all super high. DMT hyperspace. <laughs> yeah. That's right. All right. So uh, yeah, that's it for our picks this week. And now we'll ask Jordan, what have you been playing? Um, I've been playing a hat in time. Uh, I picked it up. Well, I actually was, I received it as a gift from, from Norm over the holidays and I had been playing it, uh, over the last couple months and I love it. It's, um, it's, I'm sure most people have heard of it. It's fairly new. It came out last year and it's a 3d platformer. And kind of in the vein of like Mario and uh, Banjo-Kazooie, I guess those are a bit older, but uh, Ratchet and Clank maybe, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's great. You play as uh, a little girl with a hat and uh, you get these different power-ups and you go through the planet, the different worlds, and you meet these interesting characters along the way. And I think I was expecting it to be a fun game that um, might bring me back into that 3D platformer world, but the story was so good that I just couldn't put it down. And I think, I think I beat it all in one weekend in, a, in like two sittings. It was, it was oh, that wow. good. Yeah. So yeah, it has a lot of charm and personality and, uh, a lot of fun. Nice. Well, that's a great one. Um, but uh, hat and time is a little pricey to add to the giveaway. So we're going to add, um, the one that, uh, Aaron kind of mentioned by accident last time, but then I was like, ah, sure. What? So Sonic mania. So it's probably the best giveaway we've had, I think, in my opinion, uh, since we started the podcast. So it's Pyre, Celeste or Sonic mania, three fantastic, um, games that have just recently come out. Um, that we've all, all, at least one of us has played all of these and they're all great. So, uh, yeah. So to win that giveaway, all you have to do is hop on to social media and interact with us in any way, shape, or form. So Facebook, Twitter, um, it's all good. You can also send us an email at the email address vgmgenerations at gmail.com. Um, the other thing that we love is uh, iTunes reviews, uh, which help uh, proliferate the podcast, get us more listeners, uh, something we love. So yeah, if you want to win one of those three fantastic games, feel free to hop on to... And you can just... If you type VGM Generations in uh, in Google... We'll show up all over the place. It's we're not hard to find. Um, so yeah, that's it for uh, this part, part three of Sega Month, and we will catch you guys next time.